Shelley Schlender. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. And I'm Susan Moran. Today is Tuesday, December 31st, 2013. This is our New Year's special on the 2013 Year in Science. We'll discuss major stories in climate science and extreme weather, physics and astronomy, and biology and health. And we'll look into the crystal ball for 2014 developments. This year marked the passing of longtime Boulder resident Al Bartlett. Bartlett was one of the world's most eloquent voices calling for population control. He will be missed. But one of the champions picking up the torch is New York Times bestselling author Alan Wiseman. Wiseman's latest book is Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for a Future on the Earth. Now, I have to admit that this book is a bit hard to read because it's long, and it's encyclopedic, and the urgency of the need for population reduction worldwide becomes so clear, it's often not a happy topic. Sometimes I have to admit that I even switched to a detective novel before reading more of Countdown. But I kept at it because Countdown provides some exciting solutions to population growth. One of the most compelling is to provide women with education and access to birth control. And it leads to one of the funniest chapters in the book. Now, here I am talking with Alan Wiseman about this issue of population control, which Jim and Susan, I picked as one of the leading health education problems that we need to tackle in the world today. I agree with that. Uh, Population is a gigantic, gigantic issue. Okay, let's go right into the interview. Alan Wiseman, right now the population of the world is over 7 billion people. In your book, Countdown, you've talked with many experts on population and sustainability. The message comes out pretty clear that we'd be far better off with a world of around 4 billion people. 4 billion or fewer. We don't know exactly yet what the optimum is. What we do know is that at 7.2 billion, we're already overstressing the planet that we live on. We are packing the atmosphere with the exhaust of all the energy that all 7.2 billion of us demand. Even now, the poorest people in the world are contributing to that. So many of them live in cities and they get cell phones and they're plugging in those chargers or they cut trees. All of us are now part of a situation where the planet is starting to show the fracture lines. It stands to reason that if we don't have the technology yet to provide the world with zero emission energy to the extent that we all demand it for our cities and our vehicles and our industries and you know, our China's and our India's, we might want to be thinking about what we can do, and we know how to create contraceptives. A world with fewer people is something that I think we have to look at, and that's why I investigated that very question for this book, Countdown. I was intrigued by Thailand. On average, women there in the rural areas had seven children, and birth control wasn't talked about, and one of the economists who was working on getting the grains to produce more said, this is crazy. We don't want grains to produce more. We have to deal with having people have fewer children. 
Yeah, the Thailand story in my book, it's actually a very funny chapter because he used great humor to sell this concept to the people. It's one of several examples I have in the book of countries that have turned their population growth around and brought it down below replacement rates, in some cases even faster than China's one-child policy did. In the case of Thailand, his name was Michai Viravida. He's still active today. He was an economist and had a job in development that took him out of Bangkok where he grew up and he was traveling all over the country and everywhere he went, he saw all these villages that were just swarming with kids and he realized that it would be impossible for the economy of Thailand to possibly keep up with the numbers that they were going to have to you know, feed and employ. So he started in all of his development talks as he was going around, he started handing out condoms or showing people condoms and you know, people would just look at him like he was just kind of crazy and it was kind of upsetting, you know, someone to pull out, you know, a, a foil wrapped condom in the middle of a talk about economics. And one time he was given a talk, he was, he was addressing like 2,000 school teachers and as he's doing it and he's getting the usual sort of glazed and bewildered response from everybody, he just kind of automatically, without thinking, unwrapped the packet, and then he pulls out this condom, and of course this long limp thing is hanging there, and everybody gasps. Suddenly he realizes, well, he's got their attention. And then he does what boys have done forever. He just takes a chance, and he blows it up, and everybody starts to laugh. So then he hands out a bunch of condoms, and he says, let's have a condom blowing up contest. Suddenly... He's using people's laughter to disarm the taboos about thinking about contraception. And he comes up with all these imaginative ways to get condoms out there. He gets the police force, you know, who they've got their own problems with too many people to take care of, and calls them the Cops and Rubbers Brigade, and cops are handing them out on the streets. He was working with Cambodian refugees during the war in Cambodia, and started helping them be sustainable in the refugee camps. Pretty soon they were growing so many cabbages, they had a surplus. So he set up roadside stands to make money for the refugees and, of course, put condoms into that, too. So the sign on top of the first roadside stand read cabbages and condoms. And now today, anybody who goes to Bangkok, you can find it in your travel guide. One of the best restaurants in the city is called Cabbages and Condoms. You go there, the whole decor is done with condoms. There are all sorts of statues, like there's a bride in a bridal gown. It's all completely made of condoms. There's a chain of these restaurants and some resorts now throughout Thailand. It all makes money to pump back into family planning. I think they just opened one in London, as a matter of fact. Well, it's a great idea, and we've just scratched the surface of the many ideas and observations you have in your book, Countdown. The fact that you say it is a countdown, we don't have a lot of time to look at shifting human vision toward this vision that you have. Look, it's scary to realize the situation we are in right now, and I don't put any punches in this book. But it's also hopeful because not only is this doable, it's incredibly affordable. We could provide contraception for every woman who wants it on this planet for $8.5 billion a year, and that's what we were spending per month in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, come on, this one's a no-brainer. And also, if we kick up female education, think of the wonderful resource we'll be tapping, female minds, and think of how that will help economies to have 
so many educated females. This was a win-win, and we can do it. I have to admit, though, that if I was just going to read a book for fun, I would go with the escapist detective novels. But at the same time, if I'm telling my friends a book that they should read this year, your book Countdown might be the one. Well, thank you. I, you know, I read detective novels, too. Entertainment is one of the vital parts of our life, and we should always enjoy it. We should enjoy the arts. But we also have to be realistic with us and not deny what's going on. Fortunately, this is something that we can turn around. Alan Wiseman's new book is Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth. We'll be right back with the top story and runners-up in physics and astronomy. I'm Jim Pullen, and this is How on Earth. My task was to find the big physics and astronomy story of 2013. Well, I couldn't make up my mind. My favorite, physicists try to understand if we're living in a simulation, was actually news in 2012. Higgs boson, well, 2012. But still, 2013 was pretty cool, especially for that branch of physics called astronomy. On February 15th, a super bolide, or very bright meteor fireball, came crashing into the atmosphere above the Urals. The event was caught on dashboard and handheld cameras, and even a satellite. This is the sound recorded from a handheld camera outside a high-rise building in the city of Chelyabinsk. There's a blue sky with a wobbly, fat smoke trail just beginning to drift apart. Astronomy is a field of superlatives. The meteor, about 60 feet across and weighing more than 2747s at their maximum takeoff weight, entered the atmosphere at 41,000 miles per hour. It then exploded at 15 miles altitude with a force of 20 Hiroshima's. 1,500 people received medical care and about 7,500 buildings were damaged in a half dozen towns. Where did the sky rock come from? Czech and Canadian researchers determined that the meteor was probably once part of a two-kilometer-wide asteroid numbered 86039. Science requires patience. In July, a quest 69 years in the making was rewarded. A falling drop of pitch was caught on camera for the first time. Pitch, or bitumen, looks like a rock at room temperatures. If you strike it with a hammer, it fractures. I'm outside the KGNU studios and sitting by some sandstone with my hammer. And uh, this is the sound a solid makes when you hit it. But it turns out that bitumen is a very viscous fluid. You remember that fluids flow to take the shape of their containers, whereas solids do not. But some fluids take their time like when you try to shake a spoon of honey. Viscosity is a measure of the ease with which a fluid flows. Bitumen is a couple million times more viscous than honey and about 20 billion times more viscous than water. The drip was observed on a video camera at Trinity College in Dublin. That experiment was set up in 1944. In 1927, a similar experiment was set up at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. 
the Guinness Book of World Records, acknowledges the Queensland's pitch drop as the longest-running lab experiment in the world. But the Aussies missed their chance in 2000 because the camera was off. Oh, and by the way, scientists now say that glass is a solid, not a liquid, regardless of saggy old panes of glass. There's confusion on the borderlands of the sun. Where is Voyager 1, humanity's emissary to the stars? Voyager 1 was launched from Cape Canaveral on September 5th, 1977, and carries the famous gold record. You may also remember Voyager as the spacecraft entity that the Star Trek crew found in distant space and breeded with in the 1979 film. Many science blogs, news outlets, and popular magazines claimed in September that Voyager 1 had left the solar system. Some are still saying so. But Voyager 1 hasn't left the solar system. Instead, the Long Ranger spacecraft has entered interstellar space. What's the difference? The solar system is huge. The sun's gravitational pull keeps rain on a swarm of extremely distant dark rocks and snowballs called the Kuiper Belt, some 50 astronomical units, 50 sun-earth distances away. Then there's the orbiting Oort cloud, where comets probably come from, which is 50 to 100,000 AUs away. Interstellar space is not so far away, unless you're walking. We live in the heliosphere, the sun's magnetic bubble filled with our star's streaming plasma. Outside of our bubble, beyond the heliopause, is the thicker interstellar wind of helium and hydrogen. That's where Voyager is now. How do we know? Because of Voyager's plasma wave instrument, which can hear waves in the ionized gas surrounding the spacecraft. In the low-density sun bubble, the pitch is lower. In interstellar space, the pitch of the plasma waves is higher. This is what Voyager heard. When did Voyager 1 travel into interstellar space? In late August of 2012. Why is this news in 2013? Because it took a long time to get the data from the spacecraft and to analyze it. When will Voyager finally travel 100,000 AUs to finally leave the solar system? In 30,000 years or so. By the way, it takes light only a year and a half to go that far. Surely then, Voyager 1 will be the Guinness Book record holder for the longest experiment. Let's end with this tale of far-flung neutrinos seen from the bottom of the world. The ice cube detector is designed to find ultra-high energy neutrinos, particles that may come from extreme energy sources like active galactic nuclei and gamma-ray bursts. Active galactic nuclei are the most inherently luminous sources ever seen. Astronomers believe they may be caused by gases and dust that are heated as they spiral into supermassive black holes a million to ten billion times more massive than the sun. Neutrinos of any kind would make bad company at your party. They hardly ever talk to matter, instead zipping through you and the earth as though nothing was there. But occasionally one will interact and release a spray of light called Cherenkov radiation. That's what Ice Cube is looking for. It uses the clear ice a mile under the Antarctic snows to see those flashes of light. 
Ice cubes seize lots of neutrinos, almost all from nuclear processes in the sun. But in 2013, researchers at the Big Science Project realized that they had finally detected extremely high-energy neutrinos. The neutrinos were actually detected in 2011 and 2012, but the researchers hadn't yet realized it. The neutrinos were then named Bert and Ernie, and the researchers have since discovered a couple of dozen more from the old data, and another big one in 2013 they've named Big Bird. Scientists are keen on IceCube's discovery and hope that the superenergetic neutrinos it is detecting will help reveal secrets of the universe far beyond our galaxy. There are many more stories to tell, stories about wimps and dark matter, long-lived quantum states and quantum computers, but we'll have to get to those in 2014. Next on our special New Year's edition of How on Earth, we'll look back and look ahead at major stories in environmental science, especially climate and weather. I'm Susan Moran, and I'm joined by Tom Mulesman to talk about the top climate, science, and weather stories of 2013. Tom's with us. You may recall his voice. He's contributed to the show in the past, and he's a journalism professor at CU Boulder. He writes a blog for Discover magazine called Imagio. has really cool graphics and images. Tom, welcome back to How on Earth. It's really great to be here. And I wanted to have you with me here, partly because um, you have covered climate science since you were born, pretty much, no? yeah, <laughs> since the early 80s. I mean, that was even before then NASA scientist Jim Hansen testified before Congress saying there's something beyond just the natural fluctuations in CO2 levels, and we've got to look at this as human cause. So I, I just wanted to start with what appeared to be a pretty major milestone in 2013, and I'm not sure how symbolically significant and or, or otherwise really scientifically, and that was the reaching from the at the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii that we reached 400 parts per million CO2. Right. And that wasn't globally, but sort of the northern hemisphere, right? right. So so how significant was that? Because way back, even Jim Hansen was saying, oh my God, 350, that's huge, and right. 400 is huge, and you know we don't want to cry wolf when the number keeps jumping another threshold. But how, how big is this one? Right. So on, on May 9th, uh, instruments on t- atop Mauna Loa registered 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and it was a big news event. Um, it was portrayed in a lot of ways as sort of this threshold that we crossed. But, it, you know, in a way, it's just a signpost on the highway. Uh, we sped right past it. Um, or we, I should say we are going to speed right. right past it. Because actually, shortly after May 9th, we dropped down um, below 400 parts per million as plants in the northern hemisphere start to green up and they suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So it's kind of a fuzzy symbol, fuzzy threshold or fuzzy signpost. Right, and kind uh, of cyclical, because depending and, on the right. seasons, you've got a huge source or a sink of CO2, down. right? And so we, it may be until, I think it's 2016, until the entire Earth's you know uh, average carbon dioxide concentration will be above 400 parts per million. And, you know, all signs point toward blowing right through 400 on our way to 450 and who knows what else. Yeah, and we'll get to some of the potential impacts we're already seeing. But you mentioned the tipping points. There was also a, a pretty significant report that came out from the National Research Council recently, actually. In fact, Jim White of CU Boulder, the paleoclimatologist, was, wasn't he one of the lead scientists? And he was saying that 
I believe what they said was even gradual climate changes that have unfolded over centuries will reach so-called tipping points that could result in abrupt impacts on everything from sea ice to ecosystems. And they called for these early warning systems aimed at better predicting when those impacts will occur. Right. But, but didn't, he, didn't he also say we're not even sure how to define those thresholds? So right. how, how significant are those? Well, I guess, uh, you know, as you say, the, the main idea here is, you know, we, our, our idea of tipping points is like, boom, out of the blue, this really huge thing happens and it uh, changes everything. And the takeaway message of this report is that the steady, slow accumulation of climate change um, can have a dramatic impact. And the example might be, even if sea level is rising by just inches, if sea level comes up just enough uh, uh, so that the you know levees or seawalls can be breached, that can have billion-dollar consequences, as we saw as in it did, Hurricane right? Sandy, uh, and as we saw actually in um, Katrina, in, uh, Katrina as well. Uh, some of the abrupt um, uh, changes that they identified was the shrinkage of summer sea ice, which is a phenomenon that's happened very quickly, and also an increase of a very abrupt increase in extinctions. Some of the things that they are less concerned about uh, than they have been in the past is a massive release of methane from the seafloor, for example. Uh, but they say their uncertainties are great. We need a sort of observing system to help us sort of make sure that these things don't blindside us. Right. And in terms of the parts per million, and we know we keep surpassing these thresholds, it doesn't look like um, we're in any hurry to reach some kind of international agreement. Nothing happened in Poland. Are you any more hopeful about 2014? I mean, one is expected in 2015, but... Yeah, I mean, personally, I, I don't think we're going to have a, a, an international agreement that's going to really make a, a difference, at least in, in the short term or the, the, the medium term. But, you know, well, we, in the United States, at least, our carbon emissions have, have actually dropped because of greater efficiency and a turn toward um, sources of energy that use less or that emit less carbon. So, you know, there is some hope that even without an international agreement, we can make progress with technology. But is it going to be soon enough? We'll have to see. Some hope. Well, that's a good sign. So, um, and I also want to segue into what seemingly phenomenal a year 2013 was in terms of extreme weather events. Certainly we experienced right here in Boulder with a major flood. We've got the typhoon Haiyan and the Philippines. I mean, all sorts of things that happen. The tornadoes fire some, which can and can't be linked, I think, to climate change. But how, how much of an aberration was last year? And what, what well, do you expect coming forward? Right. So uh, what I, I think we can expect going forward, especially here in the United States, is, you know, we have this uh, continuing drought in California and in the West, uh, dropping reservoir levels and a big wildfire season coming up, probably in California and probably here in the West. Um, whether climate change is a significant contributor to that or not, you know, in some sense, it doesn't matter that much. We know that these things are ongoing and are going to happen, so well, we need to prepare for them. Well, thanks. So much more we could cover from 2013 and beyond, but that, that's our time for now. So thanks so much, Tom Yulsman, for coming in and joining us. My pleasure. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bartell. Jim produced and engineered this week's show. Thank you, Jim. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Martian Bro Meridian Brothers, Tricky, 
Victoria Lundy and Darren Kramer. Visit our website. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGN Youth Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Shelley Schlender. Happy New Year. Happy New Year from the team of How on Earth.